0: As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. I try to visualize uh, some of these instances that we see in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I I try to visualize them all. And on this one, when I'm thinking about what was going on, the text tells us there were were two blind men following him. The first thing that comes to my mind is that uh, these were not the only ones following him. He had at least 12 disciples that He later called apostles that were following Him. And hardly at any time did Jesus ever go anywhere without a crowd following Him. So I'm thinking, here were two men following Him, two blind men. Now I'm not thinking about men with long white sticks trying to find their way along. And I'm not thinking about a a paved sidewalk that they're walking on or pavement on the streets like asphalt pavement on our highways. I'm thinking about a cobblestone road, maybe, or a dusty path. And people following and jammed up around him and here, these two men are groping their way along, trying to find someone, probably to get a hold of their coattails or something, so that they can, they can keep, keep up with them and at the same time yell out to the Lord. And you know what they're saying, and it's very significant. Everything, matter of fact, everything that you read in the New Testament has a signification. It's significant. It means something. They said they called him son of David. They were not following what we might call a charlatan, a snake oil salesman. They were not following someone who had (laughs) gathered a group around him and was practicing crude magic. They were following someone that they knew about, someone that was part of their family. David was one of the children of Israel's descendants. He was the son of Jesse, who was on back the son of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they were talking, they they knew that they were following a family member. They knew that they were following a man who was the greatest king the earth has probably ever known. They were following someone who who their parents had told them about. They thought Jesus was a prophet. They, They figured for sure he was a prophet, that he was the son of David. They actually believed in him. They believed in who he was. And when they got to a house, Jesus went in. I don't know how these fellows found the house, even, but they groped around. They were blind. They groped around and finally found the door. And someone may have led them. May have been Andrew. You know, Andrew was noted for that. One of the apostles of Jesus. He's the fellow that brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Introduced later on, Andrew found some Greeks in the city of Jerusalem that were looking for Jesus. He took these fellows and brought them to Jesus. Him and Philip. He and Philip seemed to do this a lot. I don't know who it was that brought them in the house. But when they came in the house, Jesus asked them a question. He said, Do you believe I can do this? He asked them what they wanted. Of course, they wanted, they wanted to see. And He said, Do you believe I can do this? And they said, We believe. And you know what? They did. They believed. Now, we're going to talk about that. But when they believed, Jesus said, so be it unto you, under your faith. And of course, they could see. They got their sight. And he told them, don't go tell it; don't go talking about it. And you know what they did? They went around talking about it. It's like telling us not to tell a secret. The secret's only good for one person. Once it gets out of the one individual, it's not a secret anymore. I don't know why he told them not to say anything. I know why he told the devils not to say anything and I know why he told some others not to say anything because he didn't want them preaching that message. They had no right to. But these fellows, he just told them not to say anything. He didn't want them announcing him. Anyone with the least familiarity of the Scriptures knows that the basis of any relationship that we have with God is based on faith. On faith. He asked these men... Do you believe I can do this? And it was because of their faith. And we're not talking about superstition. We're not talking about mysticism. We're talking about solid faith. He said, Do you have the conviction, the confidence in me that I can do this? They said, Yes. And he healed them. Most civilized nations understand the true definition of faith. It isn't superstition. And it's not hazy speculation. It's not imagination. Faith has features to it. Faith has substance to it. Faith is something beyond what people usually think of as myth. These men had confidence that Jesus was capable of granting their wishes to see because they had what we call faith. When we're talking about faith, let's see if we can get a picture up for you. We're talking about faith in God. Where's my picture? Oh, I'm getting more pictures. I've got the wrong one. I'll go back. I'm not getting it back here. I'll keep going back. Can we rewind it maybe? Oh, here we are. This is one. When we're talking about faith, we're talking about faith in one God. Now we have the evidence that others do not have. When we begin to talk about faith in God from the onset of the Bible story and we're talking about what the Bible has to say because that's... That's the unique disposition of faith. We're not talking like again I want you want you to understand we're not talking about people who have superstitions about God. We're talking about people who have some information about God. Once you have the information about God, and God has given us that information in the Bible, then we're face to face with the fact that the faith we have is that it is one God that we're dealing with. We're not dealing with a pantheon of gods, we're not dealing with a large array of mythical beings, we're not talking about will-o'-wisp, we're talking about reality. We're talking about God who exists. So from the very beginning of the outset of the Bible story of creation through the last of the written documents in the New Testament, faith in God is assumed to be of paramount importance in order to relate to God. To your Creator, you must have faith. It cannot be accomplished in any other way. You must believe in Him. You must have confidence in Him. You must have a conviction that He exists, that He is, and you must know who He is. Not just some idea of a supreme being. The Bible is very clear about this. It's the only document, by the way, that details the existence of God of the Creator and tells us who He is, what He is. God has never left man's left man to his own concept of who he is. He has revealed Himself. And in a very very uh, straightforward and very forthright manner, we're told who He is. Now, at the very beginning of the creation, and we have, a, we have the book, the Bible, and that Bible tells us the story of creation, how that God directly related to Adam and Eve, and then from several of what we call the early fathers of history, and we're looking back at them and saying, okay, God, from the book that we have that tells us about the origins, and it's the most ancient book that has any evidence like this at all in it. We have the information that God is talking to a family and the head of that family becomes known as is known as Abraham. And then that family develops until finally it becomes the nation. And when it becomes a nation, it is embedded in a place called Goshen in Egypt and it's under duress by the Pharaoh. And God tells Moses, I want my people with me. He's going to take them through the wilderness and deposit them in a land that He's prepared for them, which is the land with milk and honey, Canaan. Now, Moses, obviously, would be just like us. Who are you? Of course, God appeared to him in a burning bush. Now, Moses had the information from his family about his background and about his relatives and about their relationship with God. He knew all about God. At least he thought he did. So he he had to escape. He went into the wilderness himself for a while because he was afraid of the Egyptians. But now then, God is saying, I want you to go down and bring my people out and we're going to take them home. Very simple. Moses said, who am I going to tell them that sent me? Who how, who are you? Is what he's going to say. Who am I going to tell them sent me? And so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, it says, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel, they will say, after I say to them, they will say, who, who, who sent you? He said, I'm going to say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they'll say unto me, Who is he? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. I am that I am. You know, Jesus used that same expression in John 8, 58. He said, I am that I am. He said the same thing. So we know that Jesus is God. And he's the son of God. Anyway, he said, Thus shall you save the children of Israel. I am has sent me unto you. Okay, that that was that much. Then later on in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, Moses and God were again talking, and God spoke unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, God Almighty. And I appeared unto Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about his family. I appeared unto your family, your ancestors, under the name God Almighty. He said that by my name, Jehovah was not known unto them. Now the word Jehovah is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh. It doesn't sound like Jehovah in Hebrew. It never has sounded that way. You have a lot of people running around using the name Jehovah and we find it in our King James Bible, New King James and so forth. We find it through the latest translations translated Jehovah. But actually it, it sounds more like Yahweh. Okay. But that word simply means the existent one. The same thing as I am that I am. It means the same thing. What I'm saying is, God said, I'm going to tell you who I am. And I want you to tell them who I am. And not only that, I want you to tell them my name. So God is not vague about it. He's not having us dwell, walk through a swampy, misty, area wondering who is God what is his name not at all and he's not appearing in, several, in seven or eight different forms of mankind he's He's not a pantheon he's saying I am I'm, I'm eternal and this is my name this is, this is how you know me okay he left no doubt about who he is or how we are to consider him even though man has attempted to to distill both his identity and his name. We've tried, heroically, to try to make him vague so that we can't really distinguish him among all the gods that man's imagination has cooked up. We're not clouded in our minds with false notions of both who and what God is when we read the Bible. We know who he is. The ancients began early to confuse Him with their own imagined deities. And He said, don't do that. Don't confuse Me. Don't, don't try to worship Me under some other name. Don't try to make Me something that I'm not. I am one. There's only one of Me. Not many of Me. Only one. Of course, we know that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father are all one. That means they're all the same deity. God, just like we're all man. Man, woman, and child, we're all man. We're not many. We're not many forms. There are not many alien features of us. We're all the same. And as a matter of fact, Paul said, we're all the same blood. Not animal blood, but human blood. We're all the same blood. Polytheism, polytheism, let me see if I can say it right, polytheism. (laughs) Polytheism means many gods. And a veritable pantheon of deities that serve every imaginable need of the human thought and concept of the human conscience has sprung up. But God is very adamant. I am one. So when we're talking about faith in God, we're talking about faith in Him. Now, I'm driving this point because it's not enough just to say I believe in God in a vague sort of ethereal way when you say you believe in God you believe in the God that's revealed in the Bible you believe in God in first Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4 and 6 Paul said we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one There's just one very adamant you when you read the Bible and this is The Bible is the record book. It's the uh, the manual that came with the the, uh, project. So if you want to know anything about God, you have to go back to the source. You have to go back to the manual. And the manual tells you that there is only one God. And then Paul went ahead to say, for though there be many that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we by Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Our faith argues strongly in favor of one God. His book describes Him for us and does not leave the door ajar for other beings that are called God. It's not there. You cannot read that in the Bible. There are a lot of faiths that call themselves Christian that believe in a pantheon of gods that open their arms wide and say, well, man worships God in many different forms. Not if you read the Bible, they don't. The Bible doesn't teach God in many different forms. The Bible teaches one God. Matter of fact, it's very adamant. The Bible's very adamant. God was very adamant about it. When Israel went to the mountain, Sinai and received the Old Testament law as they started toward their home. God sent forth word by Moses and the law, and He said in Deuteronomy six, verse four and five, He said, "Hear, O Israel! Listen. The Lord our God is one Lord. You shall live. The Lord, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and you will have no other gods before Me." No more gods. I know people will sometimes talk about the man upstairs or talk about, yes, I I believe in God, but I don't believe in the God of the Bible. Well, Then you're not believing in God, basically. This is the only information we have. This is the only information humanity has ever gotten about God is in the Bible. Accepting the deities of man's invention is not an alternative. It's a mistake to think that God is akin to superstitions and unfounded mythology. Bible faith is firmly grounded in the reality of the God of the Bible. Now that's faith. That's not superstition. That's not mythology. That's faith. Conviction. Now, okay. Three points. Faith is tangible. Faith is substantial, and faith is definitive. First of all, faith in the God of the Bible is is based upon empirical evidence. You now some people get the idea when they read Hebrews chapter eleven and verse one faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That we're talking about faith, you, you can have faith without really having anything concrete. You can believe in God without really believing in something that, that you can depend on. That's not true. That's not what that text is talking about. Let me tell you something. This, this text in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is talking about your faith, the fact that God did what He said He did, and He's going to do what He's going to do. That He created everything. You can't see it. You don't know... What it's made of, it says, through faith we understand the world were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen are made of things which are not seen. Okay. What does that mean? That means that I look at the universe, I look at all the planets, I look at the sun, the moon, the stars, I look at the planets, I look at the earth, and I say, where did it come from? And my faith in God tells me that it came from nothing. That God just made it. He is not the... Boulder, necessarily. He's a creator. He brought it into being. Where did it come from? Science can't tell you where it came from. That's for sure. The only evidence we have of the existence of a creator is that he created what we see, what we can hear, what we can feel, and what we can experience. Evidence. God does not want us to believe in him and His creative power without some evidence. We are, we are locked in, in the world right now. We're locked in a struggle to try to maintain and hold together what we have materially. Did you know that? Well, sure we are. We're talking about using up and wasting all of our natural resources because one of these days, we're going to run out of stuff. We're going to run out of things. We're going to use it all up. It's all going to be gone. That's what we're told. Well, the question in my mind and everybody's mind is, what's next? What's next when it's all gone? What's next? When the sun flames out, it's gone, burns up, what's next? God created things. He brought it out of nothing. And it's going to go back into nothing, apparently. But my faith tells me that I can see what He did And when I can see what he did, I know that what he told me is right. You follow what I'm saying? The fellow says to you, you you just meet him on the street or somewhere, and maybe you're you're having coffee at at Dunkin' Donuts or somewhere, and the fellow says, you know, I built a bridge, a big bridge. Then he tells you where it is. It's called the the Ark of of Calves or something like that. He says, I I built a beautiful big bridge. Now, you're not going to believe that until you go see it, are you? When you go see the bridge, well, maybe you did or maybe you didn't, but there's the bridge. Now, God said, I created this world. All I have to do is look. There it is. I see it. I see it. Where did it come from? You know what? I don't know. That's what Hebrews 11 is talking about. I don't know where it came from. But God said He created it. And I believe that because I believe in God. I have faith. Now, what I'm saying is, my faith is tangible, it has some substance to it. It has some concrete... Uh, what can I call it? It has some concrete feel to it. It's there. Faith is there. It's something that I have. It's not ethereal. It's not a wisp. It's not something that can vanish overnight. It's there. My faith is present with me. Now, God provided a record of His creation and He provided the evidences of creation itself that attest to His power. So, we have a statement made in Acts chapter 14.17 by the Apostle Paul while he was at Lystra in Asia. He said, nevertheless, talking about God, he said, nevertheless, He left not Himself without witness in that He did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, Filling our hearts with food and gladness. God said, I created the heaven and the earth, and all we have to do is look. Did He? Sure looks like it to me. It's here. He told me He did it, and there it is. Now, He's the, this is, did you understand that He's the only one that's ever made that claim? That He created the heaven and earth? He's the only one. That's the only record we have in humanity that He did this. And I believe it. I see it. I, not only do I believe it because of that, because I believe it because of teleology. That tells me that there is a design to it. I know it has a design. I'm using a brain that God designed to speak with the voice that God gave me. He designed and created for me. I can think about God because He gave me a mind so I could think about it. I can see the evidences because He gave me that information. He gave me that ability. I can see because He gave me vision. Extremely complicated. I don't know how He did it. Will I don't know. Will we ever know how He did it? Who knows? Scientists say, well, we don't believe it because we don't know how He did it. But if you knew how He did it, you'd be a god yourself, I guess. We're not gods. We're human beings. We're the creation, not the creator. We're the robot. Not the guy that made the robot. We're the ones that have been created. And so, God said, I did it. Here you are. Here's how I made you. and the, So we, we say, okay, that's teleology because it's designed. My hands are designed to, to feel things. You don't have more nerves in the ends of my fingers than anywhere else in my body. That's so I can feel my way around, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I appreciate everything God gave me. I'm appreciating it even more because I'm losing some of it. You say, I know you are. <laughs> You're losing your mind. I hope not. I hope not. But I do know that God what God gave me I need to be using. Now in Acts chapter seventeen, verse twenty seven and twenty eight it says that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own prophets have said, your own poet said, For we are his offspring. We live and move and have our being in him. Faith is tangible. In other words, that faith tells me that I have, I, I I know that I can have that. I can, I can comprehend that. I can collect that in my, in my mind, in my memory. I, I have that information. My faith is something I can get a hold of. My faith is also substantial. I can put my, I can put my weight on my faith. Sure, I can. I can put my weight on. I can I can depend of my life upon it. It can hold us up and sustain us when we need solid ground to put our feet on. Faith that God is, that God loves us, that God sent his son for us. The faith, the foundation of our faith of course is found in a man called Jesus. He's the literal figure in history. Now, think about this. Jesus is not a figment of somebody's imagination. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. He's the firm foundation that Paul talked about when he said other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. We can put our full weight upon Him. He is our Savior. He is our, he is our, our Redeemer. He's the one that we can build our lives on. But listen to this. Our faith in Him is substantial. Now that those two men that came to Jesus said, We know you can make us see. Because they had faith. And their faith was because they knew he was the son of David. Because they had read their Old Testament. That they had listened to their parents and their ancestors. And they knew that God was promising to come in their time and send his son called the son of David. They knew he was coming. The least they knew was that he was a prophet. They knew that because it was substantial evidence and information they had. Their faith was not flimsy. It was not something that was going to crumble under their feet. Their faith was going to hold them up, support them. And that's what Jesus does. He is not the invention of weak minds. People talk about Christians being weak-minded, being ignoramuses, people that just are superstitious. We are not superstitious. Not if we believe in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is not the figment of someone's imagination. He is a literal figure in history. He appeared in history and He's chronicled in history. We mark our calendars by this name. He was not a myth. He is not a myth. He's not a legend. He's not someone that men have made up. He is the Son of God. And because He is an open book that invites examination and scrutiny, He becomes the foundation of our faith. We believe in Him. And we believe that He died for us. And we believe that He was, in this world, He was God in the flesh. That's what He said. And that's what uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, he says, "...in whom the God of this world blinded the minds of them which believe not," lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Then he said it again in Colossians 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus came to say, here's what my Father looks like, here's what we think, here's what we feel about you, here's what we're going to do for you. And he is a character in history, documented Seven ways from Sunday, as the tale usually goes. We can't deny him. Man cannot deny him. And mankind has been trying to deny him ever since he got here. Trying to deny him. But you can't deny him. He's there. And he did what he did. And every year he gets larger and larger and moves bigger and bigger on this earth. Not just nationally, not just familially. Jesus didn't appear just to a small family and then disappear. Jesus appeared to a a nation. And then that nation, although they wanted to hold him to themselves, and maybe even shut him up, they couldn't. Put him on the cross and he became international. He's worldwide. He's everywhere. Jesus is everywhere. He's prominent. And he grows larger and taller year by year. People know him. Civilized nations have seen him and know him and heard about him. He is the litmus of faith. He endures. He achieves. He stands firm and he stands unchanged. And our faith in him gives us ground. He grounds us in that. And faith, by the way, is definitive. It's clearly marked out. You don't have to wonder where faith begins and ends. It begins and ends in Jesus. That's where it is. In the book. In the Bible. If you're looking for the markers alongside of the road to see which path you ought to travel, you look in the Bible, and the markers are very clear. They're they're lighted fluorescent. Even in the dark, they shine. You can see which way to go when you go to the book of the, of the Lord. When you go to the Bible, when you go to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you know exactly where you're going. Jesus said, "It's it's, the gates narrow, and the way is the gate is is uh, the way way the other way is broad, but the way of Jesus is narrow. The gate is tiny, so it's it's hard to get in. But once you get in, you can't get off the track. And as a matter of fact, Isaiah said the way would be." so that even a wayfaring man, though a fool, would not err therein. So we know that the way that we can follow in faith is going to be definitive. And you know what? That's not the problem with faith. That's not the problem with the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible is not because it's too expansive and you can't understand it. The problem with the Bible in our society and all societies is that it's too expressive. It says too much. It's too narrow. We want to broaden it. We want to say we don't accept that. We want, we want something else. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. So the light, is, it's not as if the way of the Lord and the way of the, the faith is dark and, and uh, misty. It's because it's too light generally. But we have it. We have the book, and that book gives us the details of both good and bad behavior. First Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 says, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withers, withers and the flower fades, and falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Has it ever occurred to you that the Bible just continues on and on and on? It doesn't go away. Matter of fact, it's translated again into another language, into another dialect. More copies are made every year, more copies, more copies, and grow more copies. So it's getting larger rather than smaller. So the path is there and the way is clear and it's definitive. So your faith, you believe in God, your faith is, as we said, it's tangible. You can you can feel it as a matter of fact. And it's substantial. It's under your feet and supports you in everything that you do. And it's definitive. You don't have to wonder what it is. You read the book and you can see. You know what your faith is. So it's it's there for you. And that's why we, of course, why we have the Bible. Faith in God and Jesus does not appear magically. I said all that to get down to this point. You don't get faith by praying for it. doesn't come that way. You don't get faith by osmosis, by laying down beside a copy of the Bible in a motel room. It doesn't come that way. Your faith comes to you because you read this book. That's the only way it comes, as a matter of fact. You can't get faith any other way. You can't get faith by talking to someone who tells you about their faith. It doesn't work that way. You'd like to think it would. You can't get faith by hearing about it on the radio or hearing what other people say or looking at it, someone talking about it on television. You're not going to get faith by me talking to you about it. The way you're going to get faith, and this this is what I why I'm talking to you, not to give you faith, but to tell you where to get it. Tell you the source. I'm not the well. The Bible is the well. I can splash some water out on you. But until you go to the well and start drinking, you won't have any faith. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Bible. Hebrews chapter ten at verse seven says, faith or seventeen says, faith comes by hearing. Now I didn't say it. The Bible Bible said it. Paul said it. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Hebrews chapter four at verse twelve. Now I wanna I want to emphasize this because there's a lot of folks that believe that they're going to have some sort of a spiritual experience and they're going to have faith that somehow God is going to pour faith down over them like water over their head. When Paul the Apostle was arrested on the road to Damascus by a great light and a voice came out of that light that said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul knew who it was. He knew it was Paul knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. Read his books. He quoted that Old Testament like you can't believe unless you read it. He knew what he was facing and he knew what he was doing and he felt what he was doing was wrong. He was feeling guilty about what he's doing. It just took that long for him to decide, I better turn around. I'm not doing this right. And he said, what we you have me to do, Lord? The Lord said, go to town, go to the street, call straight, and a man come to you and tell you what to do. And he did. Okay, Paul was immersed in the Old Testament. He knew the book, so he had faith. And his faith was very quickly turned into a dynamo for the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to to the dividing asunder, of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Holy Spirit reaches you, not through a bright light, not through a dream at night, not through a vision. The Holy Spirit comes to you through God's Word. comes into your heart through God's Word. God's Word is active and makes you alive, brings you alive. Matthew twenty-four thirty-five makes this promise, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That means faith will always be available to us. The Spirit of God comes into our life through the living Word, and it produces faith. This is the avenue of faith. Without the Word of God, there is no faith. Can't be. Okay. Hebrews eleven six says, "Without faith, it's impossible to please God." He that comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Romans ten eight says, "What saith it? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart." That is the word of faith which we preach. The word of faith. Okay. God's word is universally available. We know that it's around, and we're cautioned in Revelation 22, 18, and 19, not to add to it or take anything from it because it produces faith. To the point. It's about time, isn't it? To the point. Your faith in crisis. What happens when your faith comes into crisis? What happens? Let's define crisis. Crisis is crunch time. Let's just use some terms that we're familiar with. Crunch time. Okay. When the rubber hits the road. Point of no return. When we're circling the drain. Crisis. I'm not talking about phenomena. Tornadoes. Whirlwinds. Earthquakes. Floods. Fires. Volcanic eruptions. Epidemics. Plagues. Just like we've been through. Most of us can come through those without ever having the twinge of damaging our faith. We get through those. Humanity gets through those. Most of the time we get through those, those kind of earthly physical crises unscathed, maybe a little stronger. Get on the other side and we feel stronger. We're not talking about that kind of crisis. We're talking about a downward spiral. The feeling of I'm doomed. There is no hope. I'm through. That's the kind of crisis we're talking about. A crisis of faith comes when you're by yourself. When you're all alone. When you're with your own thoughts. When it's all dark around you. When you wonder whether or not you're on the right course. When you wonder whether or not when you're even thinking, is it really a God? This is a crisis of faith. That's the crisis. Can I hold up? When you're alone, when Jesus went to the cross, what did He do? How did He do it? All by Himself. He hit the crisis. And I'm sure I know why. Because that's the strongest, hardest test anyone will ever have. Being all alone and everybody against you. That's it. When you're all alone, that's when your crisis comes. When you begin to doubt others, when you begin to get doubt yourself, when you begin to feel like it's not going to work, I can't get by, I can't do it, I can't. That's when people commit suicide. That's a crisis of faith. Human distress is, is not that hard on us. World War Two was terrible. A half million. What 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 they say was. At least a half a million Americans died then. People all over the world, millions of people were killed and uh, lost in that terrible time. But did you know that after World War II that churches actually increased in attendance? People were more concerned about God afterward than were before it. That's not the kind of crisis we're talking about. 9-11 was bad, but people managed to get by that and get stronger. Even the Great Depression, the Irish potato famine, and the Dust Bowl days. People get beyond those, but can you get beyond your own personal crisis of faith? Can you get beyond that? When you have that crisis and people say to you, everybody's doing it, come with me. Let's do it. When you think, why should I sacrifice what I'm sacrificing? Why why am I living like this? That's your crisis of faith. Now, you're not going to overcome that crisis with prayer. Sorry to say, prayer is not going to do it. You don't get faith through prayer. You're going to have to get back in your book. You're going to have to get back in the Bible. You're going to have to look to the text and say, Lord, what, what do I need? What should I do? And you, you have to go back to that book because that's where you're going to be pumped full of faith. That's where your faith has come. When your faith gets into crisis, you've got to get in the book. That's number one. Number two, you're going to have to be with people that will help mm-hmm. you get through that. The New Testament is written talking about people who come together in a community of faith. That's what they did first time the Gospel was preached. It says, The Lord added to the number daily such as were being saved. They all got together. Why? Because they needed each other. They needed to be strengthened in the faith. They needed to be exhorted to stand fast. That's When you have a crisis of faith, you need someone with you to help you, to guide you back, and to remind you of what you should be doing or how you should be feeling. Hebrews 10.25 mm-hmm. says it this way, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Exhort one another. When you have a crisis of faith, it's because you haven't been in the book lately, or you haven't been around those who are in the book to help you. Make those corrections. Don't find yourself in a crisis of faith. Don't do it. It's disastrous. Stand firm. Stand fast. One other thing. Paul, or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, I think it was Paul, in chapter 12 is talking about all the different Ones that surround us uh, that have faith. As a matter of fact, he told in chapter 11, he talked about all the old heroes and heroines of faith. Then he said, we have such a great cloud of witnesses around us. And he said that we should not be beset by the sin that does so easily beset us. Be careful. What sin is that that so easily besets us? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. Losing your faith. Losing your strength. You're gonna lose it if you don't use it. You're gonna lose it if you don't get in the book. If you don't, if you're not around other people that can lean over and touch you on the arm and say, let's, let's do this together. Let's, let's stay strong. Let's do it. God help you do that. Let's stand and sing that song of invitation.